Thank you for choosing to listen to this message. At Coastal, we believe in changing and enriching lives through the power of the Word. We pray that this message would be a blessing to you. Amen. Right on. So again, tonight, part two of Arise. I'm excited. Uh, We're going to be concluding uh, our study on spiritual warfare this evening. And and remember, we've titled this sermon, Arise, because I believe that God is calling us up. He's arising us. He's calling us to stand up and not stand down. And God is raising up and has raised up, by the way, spiritual warriors right now. I believe there's spiritual warriors that have already been raised up in this church right now. And I look up to them. There are men and women in this body, and I won't call them out because I'll miss somebody's name and you're gonna be like, hey, I thought I was a, you know, I'm, there are spiritual warriors in this church that I look up to. And listen, I would encourage you, I'm, I know you know who they are, connect with them because there's something there that they can impart to you that, so that you can walk in the freedom that God has called you to walk into. So listen, God is raising up spiritual warriors who have sort of this godly discontentment, if you will, who, who, are, who hear the call to action and they begin to take a stand. Men and women who move beyond the passivity into the realm of action. Men and women who have the courage to stand up even when there is a temptation to stand down. And so grab your Bibles with me and turn over to Ephesians chapter six. This is gonna be our passage tonight again. um, We're gonna go through a couple of different things, but I wanna read this passage as we get started. Ephesians chapter six, and we're gonna start in verse 10. It says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God with all prayer and petition Pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Amen. So last week, we spent the majority of the time talking about what it means to arise. And three different times, Paul uses the word stand in this passage. And we learned that we, that we don't stand in our own strength, but that we stand in the strength of God. What does that even mean? Well, we talked about that last week, and we answered that question. We talked about things that keep us from truly standing, distractions and doors that we tend to open. In fact, as believers, we can give the enemy, we learned, a place in our our lives, a literal place in our lives. And we talked about the fact that, yes, the enemy is a fierce opponent, opponent, but we've got to realize that he's also a defeated foe. 
And we talked about uh, our victory that we have in Christ. And yes, we are fighting, but we are fighting from victory, not for victory. And if you missed last week, I just want to encourage you to go listen to that message. But this week, I want to I step back and I want to take a look at deliverance and putting on the full armor of God. I, I really believe that God has a heart to see his children and this world free. Whole, healthy, and free. He wants us to experience true freedom. And Jesus intentionally refused the opportunity for relief and deliverance as he was headed to the cross. Why? So that he could become relief and deliverance for us. That is the heart of God. And he wants to break the hold the enemy has on masculinity and femininity by showing us that he created us both male and female in his image and that not one is superior to the other. He wants to destroy the foothold the enemy has on our young students by equipping them to truly love the way he loves but also by showing them that he made them male and female and that, that he loves that, that that's beautiful. And there's nothing wrong with that. Even when the culture says there's something wrong with that. He wants to remove the strongholds that we've allowed in our homes, by not arising and fighting and declaring as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. He wants to turn the demonic minefields of our workplace into hope by allowing us to share and be the true heart of God in our workplace. He wants to, to, like in the days of Daniel, you know, where these evil men who served in these governmental places, if you will, turned their eyes to the one true God because Daniel refused to compromise and because Daniel refused to stand down. God wants to turn the eyes of our government to him, the one true God. And I believe that with all of my heart. Pray for those that are in authority, the word tells us. Don't give up on them. We don't have to agree with them, but we can love them and pray for them and believe that God, just like he did in Daniel's days, he can turn our government's eyes to him. Listen, church, God is on the move. And your yes to God is the very thing that is going to break yokes. Your obedience and heart for God is the very thing that's going to restore things back to the way they should be. And maybe you say to yourself, you know what, Adam? I love that. That's inspiring. But I'm telling you right now, I don't think I have what it takes. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. And I love what Pastor Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel once said. He said, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking God uses only special people, the strong, the intelligent, the beautiful. We don't think he has a place for the rest of us. We are so wrong. And you may not realize this, but God, according to 2 Peter 1.3, has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And Peter is not saying, you know, everything you need pertaining to life and godliness will be given to you. He said it has been given to you. And so we've got to learn to walk and realize the authority we have in Christ. And when we stand up, when we arise in his strength, church, we are fully equipped to go do what God has called us to do. And I believe one of those things is deliverance. Deliverance. Why deliverance? Jesus modeled it. The early church demonstrated it. And as believers, we too walk in that same authority. I want to read to you in Mark chapter 16. It says, and then he told them, this is speaking, this is Jesus speaking. He says, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. 
Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. And then he goes on, he says, these miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name. They will speak in new languages. Excuse me, they will be able to handle snakes with safety. And if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick and they will be healed. Amen. Yes, that's the life I want to live. Jesus said, that's exactly what's going to happen. And when I became a believer, those signs should accompany me. And did you notice one of the miraculous signs that was going to accompany those who believe is casting out demons in his name? And deliverance is, is it, it's not meant to show us, to show people our spiritual prowess, but it's to bring heaven to earth. Deliverance isn't our platform to be seen, but it's us exercising the authority we have in Christ for people to experience true freedom. Jesus came to set the captives free and he's invited us to participate in that by bringing his kingdom to earth and by giving us his authority. Jesus met every dark situation of sin, of disease, of torment, of demonization and hopelessness with a redemptive answer that brought about freedom. Listen, church, that is the heart of God. And that needs to be our heart when it comes to deliverance, not to be seen, but to free how did Jesus model deliverance? I believe there are six foundations that I found in Jesus' approach to deliverance that I think are important to take note of. And the interesting thing is, is he didn't use all six every time, but I think they're all very important. And so I'll begin with number one. He gets the name or he identifies the spirit. You remember Mark chapter five, verse nine, you know, this was the guy in the graveyard, you know, the guy that everybody was scared of, the guy that everybody's like, let's go chain this guy up in the graveyard. He is too much for our children. This is gonna, you know, destroy them for the rest of their lives. And he's beating them himself with rocks and Jesus shows up on the scene. And what does he say? What is your name? And he's speaking to the demon and the demon answers him, legion. And we know that's Latin for like 6,000, you know, Roman soldiers. And so why would Jesus ask him his name? And you know, the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us why he did it. Uh, you know, maybe it was to gain control uh, over, over that demon. Or, or maybe it was to show everybody around how serious this demonic man was, how serious the situation was with 6,000 Roman soldier demons inside of him. Or maybe it was to show the man how serious the situation was. We don't know. But nonetheless, Jesus identifies that spirit. He calls it out. Number two, Jesus binds the spirit. In Mark chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus had to bind, or literally that means to prohibit it from some activity by breaking its power. So he had to bind the enemy so that a demonized man could be delivered. And so what exactly that looks like, I don't know. I'm not really sure, but I know in the story that Jesus healed the demonized man so that he could both speak and see, and that the crowd was just blown away as they watched because the demons submitted to Jesus and the authority that Jesus carried. And that's what everybody was amazed at, just the authority that Jesus walked with. When Jesus went into the synagogues and he began to teach, people were amazed because of the authority that he taught with. I mean, he was the word of God. Number three, Jesus rebukes the spirit. In Mark chapter one, verse 25, Jesus literally rebukes the demon by telling him to be quiet and come out of the man. And many times Jesus wouldn't allow the demons to speak. He would tell them, don't say a word. I don't permit you to speak. Why? Why would he want to shut the demons up? And I think it was to show that they were powerless under his authority. 
Jesus would cast out the spirit. And so we touched on this last week, but you might recall in Mark 9, there was that young boy who was demonized. I mean, he did nothing. He didn't sin. He did nothing to be demonized, but this demon got a hold of him. And so the disciples are there and they're like going after like in the name of Jesus out and it wasn't happening. They couldn't figure out what was going on. Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak. I command you to come out of this child. Wow. <laughs> no joke. Jesus is no joke. He cast out the spirit. Number five, Jesus refused to let the spirit come back. This is an important one. And I've heard a testimony of, uh, of a guy who uh, his kids were being, you know, de like demons were coming in in the middle of the night to the bedroom, to their bedroom and scaring them. And they were waking up frightened, crying, having seen things. And so this guy would go in and, and night after night, he would pray with his kids. And after he prayed with them, everything was good. But it kept happening. And so finally he goes to a brother in the Lord. He says, I don't understand what's going on, man. I've been trying to, to, to whatever demon is here, man, it keeps coming back and it just, they, they, it just keeps bothering my kids. And the guy said, did you tell it not to come back? And he said, I didn't think about that. And so he said, in the name of Jesus, go and don't come back. And it never came back again. Jesus refused to let the spirit come back. And number six, sometimes Jesus would send them into the abyss. I, what in the world is the abyss and where is it? We really don't know, but it seems to be a place where they would be incarcerated in Luke chapter 8, 31. The demons begged Jesus, please don't send us to the abyss or some translations say underworld. So when I read through the stories of Jesus's approach to deliverance ministry, I don't get the impression that there was a formula, so to speak. I don't get that there was this magical thing that happened or this mechanical thing that took place. I do get the impression that he had a heart to see people experience freedom. I, I do get the impression that he wasn't scared. I, I do get the impression that the demon recognized and realized his authority, Christ's authority, and they were powerless in his presence. So we see Jesus modeled deliverance. And my next question is, how did the early church demonstrate deliverance? Well, in Acts chapter five, the word talks about the apostles sharing the gospel. And as the gospel went forth, people started to give their lives to the Lord and they started to bring sick people their friends are like, you got to come. And demonized people were coming as well. And it says in Acts chapter 5, 16, crowds from the village around Jerusalem bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits, and they were all healed. That was the early church walking in the authority of Jesus. In Acts chapter 8, we read that as Philip preaches the gospel in Samaria, the word says that the crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out screaming as they, as they uh, left their victims. Wow. You might recall the story of Paul when he was in Philippi preaching the gospel. Paul goes over to the, the city of Philippi and he sees Lydia, you know, there by the, by the water and he preaches the gospel to her and she gets saved. And he goes on later to preach to the jailer when he gets thrown in jail and that jailer gets free and, 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 and it's amazing. But there was this little slave girl and, and she had the ability to tell the future. And so her bosses would make you know, quite a bit of money off this girl because she was able to tell the future. And she's following Paul and Silas around. And finally, you know, she yells out, these men are servants of the most high God. And they come to, to tell you how to be saved. And she kept doing it over and over. And Paul just gets really annoyed, right? Demons are very annoying sometimes. Paul gets very annoyed. And he finally says, look, I've had enough. And he turns around, he speaks to the demon. Okay. He didn't speak to the girl. 
speaks to the demon, and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Wow. Did you notice Paul said in the name of Jesus and Jesus never said in the name of Jesus? <laughs> so he's walking in the authority of Jesus. Number four, in Acts chapter 19, as Paul went into Ephesus to preach the gospel, the word says, God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. I love this passage. Can't put God in a box. Good try. He says, when handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. Wow. Wow. Why would God do that? He goes to great lengths to see freedom. He wants you and I to experience freedom. And when I read the stories of the early church demonstrating deliverance, I get the impression as they went about preaching the gospel, demons would surface and they would cast them out. In other words, it doesn't seem that they went around searching for demons. They went around preaching the gospel and these signs followed them preaching the gospel. I get the impression that they carried the authority of Jesus and I get the impression that it was powerful and it was supernatural. And that is the Christian life, naturally supernatural. So we see Jesus modeled it, the early church demonstrated it. And I believe we're called to walk in that same authority, setting captives free. And so I want to give you a few practical thoughts on how we are to walk into that authority. And I would say, number one, pray for discernment. Not everything is a demon. Now, it's interesting. I was listening to a podcast about medicine and the evolution of medicine. And before we had modern day medicine, people used to blame sickness and other things on demons. But as we began to develop modern medicine, we began to slowly but surely stop blaming demons and just start blaming sickness. And we went on to the other spectrum and nothing is a demon, it's all sickness. And we've got to pray for discernment. Is this, is this a medical thing that's happening? Is this a chemical imbalance thing that's happening? What's going on here? You've got to pray for discernment so that God can show you. And I've walked with some pretty, uh, you know, uh, uh, spiritual warriors. And I've seen them look at it and go, no, that's a demon. I, I know that's a demon because they have that discernment because they've been walking in that authority for a while. And so if you haven't walked in that authority for a while, I would encourage you to get around somebody who has so you can learn how to have discernment if it's a demon or not a demon. So pray for discernment. Number two, remember your authority in Christ. When Paul cast out the demon and the slave girl, what did he say? In the name of Jesus Christ come out. He knew his authority. Don't forget your authority in Christ. Number three, confront the enemy. Both Jesus and Paul modeled speaking directly to the demon. And you might even say, don't come back. Now that's scary if you're demonized and, and, and you're like, I, I want to be set free and, and somebody begins to yell at you. So you might tell them, hey, I'm going to speak to the demon. I'm not speaking to you, okay? <laughs> so, but you want to confront the enemy. Number four, if the person isn't a Christian, preach the gospel. They need to get saved. 
What does it say in, in Matthew chapter 12? When an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert seeking rest, but finding none. Then it says, I will return to the person I came from. So it returns and finds its former home empty, swept and in order. And then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they all enter the person and live there. We don't want that. We don't want the demons to come back sevenfold. Pray that they get saved. They need to accept Jesus as their savior. Number five, if the person is a Christian, and we talked about this last week in Ephesians four, Paul says, don't give the enemy a place. Don't give the devil a place. And that place is the Greek word tapas. And it means a literal place. And he's saying that you can give a literal place in your life. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how it looks, but I do know you can give a place, a foothold, a stronghold in some translations to the devil. And if that's the case, if you've given a place to the devil, then you need to humbly submit to God. You need to see things the way he sees things. You need to repent and you need to start walking in the light. Now, I've been able to do that on my own. I can honestly tell you there's times where I'm, I've just been able to, to you know, uh, avoid uh, you know, giving the place, uh, devil a place in my life by, by not caving in to bitterness and by not caving in to, to unforgiveness. But there's times in my life where I, I harbored it a little too much and I felt depressed and I felt you know, just anxious and I didn't want to be involved in ministry anymore and it was too hard and now I'm working but I'm not really serving Jesus but I'm just working and going through the emotions and I literally had to have my brothers come alongside and pray for me. And, and some of them were in the name of Jesus come out. And I was delivered. Like I said, I don't know what that looks like, but you can give the enemy a place. But I would say, humbly submit to God, see things the way he sees it, repent and start walking in the light. Remember, God desires for all of us to be whole healthy and free. The enemy does not want us to experience that at all. And so church, we're called to stand. We're called to, to arise. And so how do we stay standing? How do we stay arise? We fight the battle that God has called us to fight by standing in his strength and by putting on the full armor of God. And notice again with me, Ephesians 6, 13, it says, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, stand firm. So we were heading over uh, to the Kwajalein Islands, which is right in between Hawaii and Australia. It's the Micronesian Islands and Kwajalein was one of the islands. And the reason we were going over there is because we were the test platform for this new uh, ICBM-3, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Defense. So it was a defense missile. And, and so we were the first ship to have that aboard our, our ship. And, and, and li literally there was a treaty that had expired. Evidently, you weren't allowed to have those at sea. You could have those on land, but not at sea. And so that treaty had expired. And so now we were the first uh, ship to have that tested on. And so we broke away from our battle group and we're heading to Kwajalein to test this missile. And this missile, we would, we would link up with, with a satellite in, in outer space. We called it Link 16. We would link up to this. And then somebody over in the Middle East would be able to link up to it, one of our boats. And then we would be able to see what they see. And the moment we saw an intercontinental ballistic missile start to come from the Middle East over, we would fire our missile up. It would enter outer space. It would literally project infrared and search for that missile and it would destroy it before it hit us. And it was a defense system. 
And that's exactly what God has given us with the full armor of God, a defense system so that the enemy cannot penetrate us and destroy us. And if we put on the full armor of God, we will be protected. He says, having girded your loins with truth, or in another translation, the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation with the gospel of peace, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, take the helmet of salvation, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and with all prayer and petition, pray for everybody. And Paul would have been very familiar with the the, the armor of a, a Roman soldier. You know, Paul's, Paul's mission was to go preach the gospel. And when he would go into these different areas and preach the gospel, he preached that Jesus was Lord. That was a big deal because Roman emperors like to be called Lord. And so when he preached that Jesus was Lord, the Roman army would be upset. They would arrest him and imprison him. And Paul found himself on more than one occasion, either in the same room as a Roman soldier or chained to a Roman soldier. And I'm sure he asked some questions about the armor that they were wearing. So he was very familiar with the armor that they wore. And a few things to keep in mind concerning the armor. Number one, each piece is meant to be understood as a metaphor. It's not some magical thing. Each piece presents us with something to believe and something to obey. And number three, each piece represents Christ and his work for us. And so starting with the belt of truth, before a Roman soldier donned his army, the first thing he would do is he'd put the belt around his waist. And the the belt, you know, gave him that, that ease and freedom of movement. And this is exactly what truth does. It gives us freedom. The Bible tells us in John chapter eight, verse 44, that Satan is the father of lies. And it's so easy to begin to entertain the lies of the enemy, but we have to learn to put the belt of truth on so we can defeat those lies. God is never going to forgive me this time. I've done it too many times. That's a lie. The truth is, John, or 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, God's angry at me. He's mad at me again. I've messed up. Not true. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5. You'll never amount to anything. You just don't have what it takes. That's a lie. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, you're God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand so that you should walk in them. Uh, You have every right to be angry. Harbor that bitterness. You deserve it. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity, a place, a stronghold, a foothold. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God according to James 1. Some of us need to stop listening to ourselves and we need to start speaking truth to ourselves. The truth is a person. Okay, we're hearing constantly in our culture, well, that's my truth. Well, my truth is, no, that's not your truth. That's your opinion. And you can have your opinion, but that's not your truth. Jesus is the truth. And Jesus said that he was the truth and knowing him would set us free. And so we can't allow the enemies, the lies of the enemies to chain us up. We have to put on the belt of truth. Breastplate of righteousness. You know, righteousness is doing the right thing at the right time. Have you ever said the right thing at the wrong time? 
<laughs> many times, and it's gotten me in trouble uh, to where I've had to apologize many times. The breastplate is what protects our most vital organ, our heart, our heart. And to be righteous is to endeavor, to endeavor to do what is right according to God's standard. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. And one of the enemy's greatest weapons against us is sin. Sin. Sin in the life of the believer, he causes us to have sad hearts, broken hearts, and hard hearts. And there is such freedom in not falling into sin and having our heart protected by righteousness. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. And so as we put on that breastplate of righteousness, we're protecting our hearts. And we can't forget that even though God has called us to be righteous, He's also made us righteous. And the enemy will try to trick you on this one. You are righteous because of Christ. He who did not sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. I call it the big switcheroo. God has made us right through Christ. The next one is shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You know, we know the importance of different shoes. You know, if you're going to play football, you're not going to wear slick shoes. You're going to get some of those massive cleats, right? If you're going to play baseball, the same thing. Cleats, if you're going to do golf and, and, you know, and be somewhat good at it, you're going to have to have some golf cleats, you know, soccer and so forth. We know that. The Roman soldiers knew that as well. It's my understanding that Alexander the Great, you know, who conquered, you know, most of the known world at that time and who was an amazing leader at that time, one of the tricks that he had up his sleeve is ever, all of his soldiers had really good footwear and they were able to travel faster than any other armies around. And that's how they were to, able to get to places because of their shoes. Shoes are so important. And as Christian, God wants us to have the gospel of peace on our feet. Wherever we go, he wants us to take the gospel of peace. And this means we don't walk on people, but we start to share with people. And Jesus is the prince of peace. And when we become his followers, we become peacemakers. And listen, if, if as a Christian, everyone you talk to, you have conflict with, you're probably not acting like a Christian. If you're one of those who are really salty with everybody, it's probably not a good thing. We are peacemakers. Nobody, nobody gets saved because we're angry all the time watching more news than we are reading our Bible. Our tactics need to be Jesus's tactics. He was the prince of peace and we are to be peacemakers. Makers. I don't know. I've never heard anybody say, you know, I want to give my life to God so I can be angry, grumpy, and cynical just like that person. <laughs> we, we've got to get the gospel of peace on our feet, showing up with peace because the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is guarding us. And we become vehicles of peace, leading people to the great and mighty prince of peace. Peace is the very oxygen of heaven. The next one is taking up the shield of faith. And the enemy is always sending fiery darts. And we have the ability, we have the choice to hold up that, that shield of faith. And faith is trusting in God and what he's done. 
And the enemy loves to deceive us by making us think that God, his heart really isn't for you, Adam. He often, you know, does this when we're, when we're crying out and waiting on God to move. And we feel like we've, we heard the voice of God, but something isn't happening. And so we're crying out to God and the enemy sees that as an opportunity. And he tries to get in there and wedge our relationship with God by making us think that God really doesn't care. So in, rather than waiting and being still on God, we get anxious and we start to grow weary. Faith is trusting God's heart even when we don't see the hand of God. And we have to choose to hold up that shield of faith. And we hold the shield of faith up when the enemy starts shooting those lies about God. Did God really say, Adam? Did, did God really call you to that, Adam? You know, did, did God, did, does God really care? Listen, the culture is constantly trying to get us to put down our shield of faith. Oh, you can't believe that stuff. That's ridiculous. That's fairy tales. Oh, in Switzerland, when we went to the streets of Switzerland and hit the streets and we started proclaiming the gospel, you know, people would receive us, but they're like, hey, man, that's for kids. You know, those are great stories that you take your kids to and they, they learn moral lessons, but that's it. There, there's no power in that. Oh, the culture is trying to get us to, to put down our shield of faith. I don't think so. Jesus is alive and as real as he was 2,000 years ago. And our faith is as solid because the tomb is still empty. And the death that Jesus paid and the spirit that's been given to us, we have. It's a down payment. And so let's not forget to hold up the shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. This was usually a leather cap. I think about those old football days, you know, where they had those leather helmets and you're like, what did that do? Like, <laughs> but that's what they wore, these, these leather caps and they had these metal studs that, that poked, out of, poked out of them for extra strength. And so the helmet was used what? To protect the mind, the head, the brain. And that's exactly what it does. It protects our minds. And you've heard it said that the battle really is a battle in the mind. And 1 Thessalonians 5.8 speaks of the helmet of salvation in connection with the hope of salvation. And the helmet of salvation protects us against discouragement, against, you know, the desire to give up, against, you know, not having any hope. But it gives us hope, not only knowing that we are saved, but that we are being saved. And it's the assurance that God will triumph. The Bible says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And what does it mean to be a more than a conqueror? It means you win the battle, but you come out of that battle with more than you walked in with that battle. We are more than conquerors through Christ. And then we get to the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And the word of God is key. The word of God isn't to hurt people. You know, I remember the story of Peter, you know, in the garden there, when they come to arrest Jesus, Peter's like, ain't having any of that. And he goes to, I think he goes to chop the guy's head off, but he misses and hits the ear. <laughs> tries, to, tries to destroy this man. And I love the fact that Jesus healed the man. I love the fact that, that Jesus healed a person that was against him from a wound that was inflicted by his own followers. Wow. Listen, the word of God is not to be used to wound a person who is against God. Jesus is gonna you know, at some time have to heal that person so they can bring him back to him. The word of God helps us see the world through the eyes of God and it's how we fight our battles. And this is interesting. When I read through the Greek in this, the Greek word for sword, it doesn't refer to this big, large sword that we often think of. It actually refers to the small dagger, which was used in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And the Greek word for, for word is not logos. It's rhema. 
interesting. And it doesn't necessarily refer to the Bible as a whole. And I say not necessarily because I believe all words should line up with the word, right? But, but it, it, it talks about the rhema is a word that has a definite meaning, a, a word fitly spoken, a word that is precise, a now word that comes from God. And as we study and meditate on the full counsel of the written word, I believe the rhema word, that precise and now word of God will come exactly when we need it in any situation. And then Paul concludes with prayer. And he says to pray in the spirit on every occasion. And he says, stay on the alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Listen, prayer is a powerful weapon that we need to get our hands on. So you say, well, it's not really a part of the armor, right? You know, no, I think it's the battle cry of the soldier. Prayer is a powerful weapon in our arson. Mark Batterson, he says it like this. I love it. He says, prayer is picking a fight with the enemy. It's a spiritual warfare. Intercession transports us from the sidelines to the front lines without going anywhere. And that's where the battle is won or lost. Prayer is the difference between us fighting for God and God fighting for us. Prayer is a powerful weapon in our arsenal. Prayer should be our go-to, not our last resort. And Paul not only says to pray, this is interesting. He says to pray in the spirit. What do you mean? What does praying in the spirit mean? Well, I believe that he goes back to Acts chapter two, verse four, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples in the upper room and they began to speak in tongues. Praying in the spirit means to pray with words and phrases. And as Romans eight indicates with groanings <laughs> that we never learned and that we don't understand intellectually. My grandmother taught me this as a, at a young age. She says, Adam, I need you to pray for this. I don't know how to pray. Then pray in tongues. I don't, how do I do that, Grandma? <laughs> you do it like this. And she would teach me how to pray in tongues. And so I learned from a very young age, I want to buy a Honda. I want to buy, I want to buy a Honda. I, yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but from a very young age, I was taught praying in tongues is a powerful tool in the arsenal of a Christian. And I would encourage you, it's not weird. It's not out of this world. It, it, it's supernatural, I think, but it is biblical. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 14, he says, for I pray in tongues, my spirit is praying. But I don't understand what I'm saying. Praying is not a path of least resistance. It's usually the path of most resistance because we're engaged in spiritual warfare. In fact, when we begin to intercede for others, I would encourage you, call your brothers and sisters up and have them intercede for you because it is spiritual warfare that you're about to enter. And you say, you know, I don't even know if I'm really experiencing spiritual warfare. Careful, <laughs> then maybe you're not a threat to the enemy. I want to be a threat to the enemy. When we walk in the authority of Christ, we are a threat to the enemy. And he does not want us to be free. And so what I would encourage you, church, we live in a time where it is very tempting to stand down. Do not stand down. Stand up. Arise. God has given you the authority to love like he loves. You don't have to be a jerk. 
You don't have to be mean. You can love like Jesus is. You don't have to be aggressive, but we're definitely not called to be passive. We're talking about Jezebels in the church often. Oh, she's such a strong personality. She's just a Jezebel. You know, what about Ahab, the guy that did nothing? You know, her husband, the guy that was very passive and just let her do whatever she wanted to do. Men, it is time to stand up, to arise and to not stand down and to be the men and the women that God has called us to be in this culture. We are in a spiritual demonic battle and you have the upper hand. You have the authority in Christ to cast out demons like that. And I, I want to experience this on a supernatural level. And I, I'm telling you, I've, I step out in faith. Just start going after it. I, I did. And I fell several times. <laughs> I, I was in Stockton and I had a group of students that I was teaching and we were talking about deliverance. And I said, hey guys, why are we talking about this? Let's go live it out. <laughs> and in Stockton, there's a lot of homeless people that like to talk to themselves and are very weird. And I'm like, that's demonic. And so we walk up in the name of Jesus and they weren't having any of it. I'm like, guys, get out of here. Hurry, run. <laughs> Just step out in faith and start going after it. I promise you, the more you go after it, God will begin to equip you to give you discernment. Connect with somebody who's walking in that authority already. Learn from them, glean from them. Read through the gospels to inspire you and equip you as you watch Jesus do this very thing. Read through the book of Acts as you watch the early church do this very thing and know that God has given you the authority and the armor of God to protect you from all the enemy's strategies. The enemy has a strategy. What is your strategy? Church, it's time. Arise. Stand up. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that the battle belongs to you. We thank you, Lord, that we have victory in your name. Hmm. Thank you, Jesus. Fill our hearts with your love, Lord. Would you allow us just the ability to, to, to long to see people free from the demons, Lord, free from the devil? <laughs> we want to see people living the life that you've called them to live, whole, healthy, and free. Empower us by your spirit, God. Do a work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen church. Awesome. Thank you, guys.